Welcome to the Staying Connected podcast, the preaching ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in Montrose, Colorado. I'm Pastor Roland Kennison, and I want to thank you for listening. Rosemont Baptist Mission is passionately bringing people face-to-face with the life-changing power of Jesus Christ. It's our prayer that through this podcast, you'll hear our passion for the gospel and that you will truly experience the transformation that only Jesus can bring. I pray you find the following sermon encouraging and challenging and that it will build you up in the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. And one more thing before we begin. If any of the sermons on our podcast have been helpful to you, would you please let us know? It would be a great help and blessing to us to know that this ministry is being used by God in your life and ministry. Would you tell us where you're located and specifically how this ministry has helped you? We greatly anticipate hearing from you. You can simply email your response to pastor at rosemontbaptist.org. Now, let's begin our time today. We're going to be in Zechariah 8. If uh, you have your Bible, you can turn from Matthew, go, go to your left. I mean, if you're in the New Testament, you can go backwards. If you don't have your Bible, there's one under, a, under the pew a black Bible there, and uh, if not, it'll also be up on the screen. But we're going, we're, we are in the middle of a message of, of good news that Zechariah is giving the people of God. He has told them in chapter 7, worship needs to be with, with God in the center. Our lives with God in the center of all that we do. And when we place ourselves in the center, that becomes empty worship. And God is not pleased with that. And now that God's people in Zechariah's day are fulfilling what he has called them to do, He's giving them good news. And so let's look in verses 9 through 13 and see what God's word says this morning. It says in Zechariah 8, starting in verse 9, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Let your hands be strong. You who are listening in these days to these words from the mouth of these prophets, those who spoke in the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid to the end that the temple might be built. For before those days, there was no wage for man or any wage for animal. And for him who went out or came in, there was no peace because his enemies. And I set all men one against another. But now I will not treat the remnant of this people as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts. For there will be peace for the seed. The vine will yield its fruit. The land will yield its produce and the heavens will give their due. And I will cause the remnant of this people to inherit all these things. It will come about that just as you were a curse among the nations, O house of Judah, And house of Israel, so I will save you, 
that you may become a blessing. Do not fear. Let your hands be strong. Let's pray this morning over our passage. God, I thank you for your word. And I thank you that we can read something that was uh, written by, by you through men centuries ago, millennium ago. But we can still gain truth from it and know what life is like and how to live according to you because the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. God, I pray this morning that as we think about our spiritual life that we would evaluate it honestly and real and that you would penetrate our hearts with the message we need to hear. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, you know, many of you probably have seen, if not all of you have seen, those type of ads in the paper or on TV where there's the before picture and the after picture, right? It's usually about weight loss, but it could be an old house and a new house or, or whatever, but it's usually weight loss, right? There's this person that's over here that's before and and then after weeks or months or whatever, there's this after picture that's new and, and whatever, um, you know, healthier and all that. And the picture is supposed to look a lot better in the after. Um, the new thinner you, you know, is supposed to be there. And, you know, recently there was one of these commercials on TV that it was like running all the time, especially when we were watching the news. And there was this girl who, through the magic of television, was talking to herself, right? There was the before her, and then she was talking to the after her, and she was saying how great she looked and how much weight she lost, and I could not tell the difference between the two. I'm like, I don't see the before and the after. I don't know why, and I, it was bugging Rhonda, because every time it come on, I'd be, Rhonda, 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 look, look, it, do you see any difference between the before and after? And she would just roll her eyes and continue on. But it just bugged me because it was not the before and after. Now, don't get me wrong. I wasn't criticizing her. I'm stuck personally in the before picture, right? That's me. But, but I, I want us to think about something different than our physical selves in the before and after. I want us to think about our spiritual life. Moving our thoughts from the physical self to a spiritual self and saying, what is our life before and what is our life after in a spiritual sense? The passage we're going to look at today really is a kind of a before and after picture. It's not so much before and after salvation as much as it is for those who are followers of God, what does it look like before we follow his word, before we're obedient, what does it look like afterwards? And so we're going to examine that and see what we can find out. Zachariah's pointing to a before and after scenario, and he's doing that to help the people of God to be motivated to follow after him to encourage them to continue to be obedient. He wants them to know that God can redeem the hard times that they were living through 
in order to produce this after in them. And so we, that, you know, that's the message that we are going to see today for us. And I hope we can look at our spiritual life and see a before and see an after and receive the same encouragement from the Lord to follow after him, to be obedient, that God can redeem the hard times to produce this after image of us and what that looks like. And so before we look at the before and after, we should take stock of the spiritual life, right? That person who might be losing weight has to look at and evaluate their life before and, and say, what do I need to do so I can reach the after? And that's exactly what Zechariah is telling them. In essence, he's telling them to evaluate your spiritual life in verse 9. Look what it says. Thus says the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong, you who are listening in these days to these words from the mouth of the prophets, to those who spoke in the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid, to the end that the temple might be rebuilt. So as I go into this particular thought here, I want to start by reminding us that whenever we read the Old Testament and it referenced the land the land being uh, fruitful, or the land being in drought, or healing the land, or anything like that, it was not about prosperity. The land was an object lesson for the people about their relationship with the Lord. Now see, followers of Christ today, we have the Holy Spirit that tells us what our relationship with the Lord is, but they didn't have the Holy Spirit like we do. And so they would look at the land, and if the land was fruitful, and they would plant something, and stuff would come up, and the rain would come, and it would, it would produce the moisture that needed to be done, and they could reap a harvest that was enough for them and their animals and for seed for the next year, they knew they were in right relationship with the Lord. But when they had drought and they couldn't get anything to, to grow from the ground, or, or whenever there was, you know, they would produce some sort of fruit, but it would be small and not enough, they would realize that there's something wrong in their relationship with the Lord. And that should color our thoughts as we read this passage. Because he's telling them here, I want you to remember how things were in the land. And let me show you what I mean. When we, when we studied Ezra, we did a, a while ago, we heard that God moved Cyrus, the king of Persia, to, to he ordered the people of God to go back and build the temple. This king from a foreign nation tells God people, I command you to go and build the temple to Yahweh God. And so the people of God came back, and they did. They started building. It was in rubbles, because that's how it was left when Babylon came and took it over. And they worked, and they worked, and eventually they got the foundation laid for the temple. And we read in Ezra 3, 10, and 11, it said, now when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord 
according to the directions of King David of Israel. They sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his loving kindness. That's that word, hased, we talked about uh, several weeks ago. His loving kindness is upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with great joy. With, I'm sorry, they shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of Israel was laid. They, they were able to lay it and they were praising God because worship could begin again. And, and we might remember that Ezra tells us that some of the older men who could remember is uh, the Sol- Solomon's temple, while the people were shouting in praise, they were crying because they knew this temple would never have the glory of Solomon's temple. And this crying and, and rejoicing was a mixed sound and no one could tell what was what. There was just this huge noise. So the foundation was laid and they could begin the work that God had called them to do because it was an accident that Cyrus commanded them. God commanded them through Cyrus. This was God's command to do what he called them to do, to build the temple. But the enemies of God, they would come and disrupt the work that the people of God were doing. In fact, it was so bad, they discouraged and scared the people of God so bad, we read in Ezra 4.24, then the work on the house of God of Israel ceased, and it was stopped until the second year of the reign of Darius the king. And here's what I want to get to. God had commanded them to do something. They were obedient to do it, kind (laughs) of, right? And then they stopped. And they stopped for something like 16 years. And God said, I commanded you to do this, and you haven't. And then we get to read about in Haggai, what it was like. During this time of disobedience, look what it says in Haggai 1.5. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Evaluate what's going on around you. Evaluate your spiritual life, he says there. And look what he says. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one's warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and rebuild the temple that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. And look what it says. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts, because my house, which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew and the earth has withheld its produce. I called, God says, I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on all the labor of your hands. God says there is this connection here between what's going on around you and your obedience to me. 
And so we need to evaluate that. They were to evaluate what was going on around them and make a connection of the relationship between the land's desolation and their obedience to God. But God did not leave them to just kind of make this evaluation on their own. He sent them prophets. And it says in Ezra 5, 1 through 2, when the prophets, Haggai the prophet, and Zechariah the son of Edu, prophesied to the Jews who were in, the, in Judah and in Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them, that is to say, Haggai and Zechariah began to preach. And it says, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, uh, Joshua, the son of Josedzak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God, which was in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting, him, supporting them. God's prophets came, they heard God's word again, and the people began to obey again. And here is the message that the prophets told them. Haggai 1.4, it was God saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? God is simply, I go through all that to simply say, God had given them a very clear command, build. And they said, well, we did a little bit. We got a foundation laid. But the enemies, it's too hard to fight them. There's too much going on. There's too much over here that needs to get done. And so they, they, did not, they did not obey. And so when we read Zechariah 8, 9, we are in two years into the building of the temple. They have been obedient and they have continued to obey. And so God tells them, let your hands be strong. It's a call to courageously continue, even in the midst of dire circumstances. They, they have experienced drought of all the things that God said they were going to have. The drought of rain, drought of food, drought of their work, drought of you know, whatever it was. They were just going to have a hard time. But in the middle of that, they were called to obey. And they did. And they did because God had called them to obey. It's a call to courageously follow God in these hard circumstances. It's a call to undertake a demanding task and finish the temple, even when it looks like it's not making any difference. Two years into the project, they were probably pretty discouraged. We know from history, it takes them another two years to get done. So God says, evaluate what's going on. Evaluate your spiritual life. And so my question is to you, when was the last time you honestly evaluated your spiritual life? When you looked at what your relationship with God looked like. Are you closer to God today than you were last July? Are, are you growing in the Lord is there sins that are still tripping you up 
that, that you should have been able to deal with through the power of the Holy Spirit. Maybe you're walking through a difficult time right now, and I'm not simply saying that our hard times come when we're disobedient. Sometimes that's the case, but that's not every time, but we should evaluate it. You know, sickness doesn't come just because we have sinned. Sickness comes because sin is in this world. We all will grow old and die. I hope that's not news to y'all, but that's, the, that's what's happening, right? We, that is living on this planet. People get sick. People get injured. Times are tough sometimes financially. This is, this is part of living in a world that is tainted with sin. But there are times when God brings things into our lives as an object lesson of how we're doing. Because sometimes we're not listening to the Holy Spirit. We might call it the two-by-four that God hits us upside the head. We might call it the, the woodshed, you know, so we're getting disciplined by the Lord. But that might be the case. We should evaluate it. It might be that it's a, it's a pruning or a testing to make us stronger. Zechariah calls them to evaluate their spiritual life. Were they being like the past generations where they were dragging their feet, finding every excuse not to obey the Lord, or were they wholeheartedly committed, zealously following after what the Lord has commanded them to do? So he asks them to evaluate. And the rest of this passage contrasts what happens when God's people do not obey God's word and what happens with them when they do obey God's command. And this has to do with worship because worship, real worship, is when God's in the center of our life and we're following after him. That is real worship. It's not necessarily just singing on Sunday morning. Singing on Sunday morning is worship. But our lives should be a life of worship. So the rest of this passage contrasts those two things. And so we're going to first see what, he, what I'm calling the rewards of disobeying God's word. What is it that happens when we disobey God's word? What should we anticipate in receiving? And he, he reminds them here of what God's word, what, what their life was like when they did not place a priority on following God's word. They were busy with their own lives. They were neglecting the temple of God. And when they did that, there were consequences. And just like that, in our spiritual life, when we are living, neglecting the worship of God, when we are not living in full obedience to him, there are consequences and we see those reflected in the words of Zechariah. First, we see when we refuse to follow the Lord, he says, we will see no fruitfulness. Look in, look in the first part of verse 10. For before those days, there was no wage for man nor any wage for animal. You know, we're used to hearing about wages of humans, but not not wages for animals. And all this is saying, it's just a way of saying that all the work that human effort was trying to produce, it was not going to produce anything. They would, they would plow, they would work hard the land, they would work the land hard, you know, they would get oxen, they'd try to plow the land, they would try to irrigate with whatever water, and they would not get enough, not only to, not enough to feed the animals, but they wouldn't have enough to feed themselves. 
In the passage we read earlier from Haggai, we see that it could be summed up, all the stuff that we talked about, that there was no fruitfulness in the land. A drought of men, a drought of animals, a drought from the heavens. There was no produce. There was nothing. It could all be summed up by saying there was no fruitfulness in their life. They'd put on clothes. They'd be cold. They would eat. They'd still be hungry. They'd put money in their purse. It was like there was a hole in the purse. It just kept going through. They would sow a lot of seed. There was nothing to harvest. There just wasn't any fruitfulness. Jesus speaks to us about fruitfulness in our lives. Look what it says in Luke 13, 6 through 9. It's a parable, this short little parable. He begins, and he began, Jesus is speaking, telling this parable. A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I've come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered, that is the vineyard keeper answered and said to the man, let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine, but if not, cut it down. Spurgeon says this parable so easy. It doesn't need any explanation, but I'm not a skilled communicator as Spurgeon, so I'm going to explain it just a little bit. Um, see, this, this man who owned the vineyard is the heavenly father. And the fig tree that doesn't produce figs is a follower of God who isn't producing the fruit of the Spirit, isn't producing any fruit in their life. And God says, this fig tree is supposed to produce figs because Christians are to produce fruit in their lives like a fig tree is supposed to produce figs. It's just the natural byproduct. It should be what's happening. And God says, cut it down and throw it away. And the, vine the vineyard keeper, who is Jesus, says, let's give him some grace. Let's wait a year. Let's spend some time helping this thing grow like it should. And if it still refuses to produce in a year from now, then let's cut it down. Jesus tells the Father, let's give him some grace. That's just like Jesus. So we must ask ourselves, am I the fig tree? Is there, could there be, while well, this is a parable, could there be a discussion maybe up in the, in the heavenlies where the father is saying, let's cut Roland down and throw him out because there's no fruit in his life. And Jesus is saying, let's give him another year. <laughs> right? Where, let, me, let me show some grace. God's patience is not eternal, but God's grace is, praise God. So when we walk with Jesus and we follow his word, there should be fruit in our life. And what 
Zechariah is telling us is that when they were disobedient, there was no fruit. And that makes Jesus' words even more poignant in John 15, 2. He tells his disciples, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. See, something's getting cut in your life. No matter what. If you're disobedient, he's going to prune you and take care of it. And if you are being fruitful, you're going to be pruned so you can bear more fruit. And then he says in John 15, 4, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. As a believer, we are to produce fruit, but it's not just our working of it. We are a branch. We are supposed to allow the Holy Spirit within us that comes to us through Christ alone to produce the fruit. And we just hold it out for the world to see. But when we are disobedient and not obeying what the Word, word of God has revealed to us, we should not anticipate fruitfulness in our lives. And it's something that we should examine. Because fruitfulness comes from abiding in Christ. It's the natural byproduct. Christians bear fruit like a fig tree bears figs. So when we're in rebellion against the Lord, our lives will see no fruitfulness. And he also says our lives will see no peace. Look at the last part of verse 10. And for him who went out or came in, there was no peace because of his enemies. And I set men one against another. That phrase here, who, he who came in or came out, it's a phrase that means just everyday activities. They, they saw trouble when they were coming and when they were going. Wherever they went, there was strife, there was trouble. And we see that there was external strife. He says that there was the enemies, that's with reference to people who were not God's people, but coming in to thwart God's people. We have an enemy in Satan whose job it is, who his one goal is to thwart us being obedient to God's word. If we've come to know Christ, he cannot take that from us, but he can sure try to make us ineffective. So there's external strife, but then there was also internal strife. And that internal strife, when he says, I set all men one against another, he's referring to those within the family of God. See, when there's a brother living in disobedience, they cannot find peace among those of God's people who are trying to live in obedience. And in fact, if there's a whole body of people that are living in disobedience, there is not peace there. We might think maybe in the past of churches we know where there was hardly any peace because everybody was centered in their own life worshiping themselves. I praise God for this body that has the unity that's found only in the Spirit. And we don't have that here, but that's because we all work and submitting our preferences and our desires to the Holy Spirit. As believers, we're promised a peace that passes understanding when we walk with the Lord. But if we choose to go our own independent way, we should not anticipate that peace. So the rewards for disobedience, what are the consequences of living in rebellion? 
no fruitfulness, and no peace. Now remember, this whole episode started in Zechariah 8 when we, we started actually in Zechariah 7. And so, and they were asking a question about fasting. What does any of this have to do with fasting? And it has to do with obedience. Obedience to specific tasks that God has called us to do. It's not, I'm obeying God generally, just not here. It's, it's following God exactly where he's told us to follow him. Let's think about evangelism for a minute. We know that through the Great Commission, Matthew 20, Jesus commanded each and every believer, each and every believer, to make disciples of all nations. That started by going and sharing the gospel with each other, sharing the gospel with those who need to hear it. And so we, we think about that, and I think about it and say, am I faithful in what God has commanded me to do? And then I think about this. What if someone offered me $1,000 for every person I earnestly tried to share the gospel? Would I be more excited about evangelism? See, that's convicting for me. Because I, am I more, and I'm using me, and I'm hoping you're putting you in these. You know, am I more motivated by something other than the simple fact that God, the Lord of hosts, the God who commands the angel armies, commanded me to do something. The God who saved me through the love of Jesus Christ said, I want you to do this. That should be motivation enough. Remember chapter 7, these men were worried about whether or not they should fast or not. Should we continue to obey this? We've been doing it for 70 years. Should we fast? Should we not fast? Because it, I don't like fasting, but everyone's fasting, so maybe I should. And God never commanded them to do that. They were so worried about following this rule that God never commanded. Meanwhile, the temple needed rebuilt. The thing that God commanded them to do laid in ruin. That was before. That's what it has to do with fasting. God's saying, all I want is for you to obey what I've told you to do. Don't add empty rituals. Don't add this legalism. Do what I've commanded. And God had set hard times on these people in the past to send the clear message, build and now this generation started building and things started to change. So when you take stock of your spiritual life, what do you find? Is there something in your life that you're dragging your feet on? You know it's in disobedience to God. You look, evaluate it and you see you have no peace and no fruitfulness. Maybe today it's time to turn that over to the Lord. Maybe you've never trusted in Christ at all and you say, you know, that's my life. No peace. There's no fruitfulness. And I need to turn my life to Christ over to him today. So we looked at the rewards for disobedience. 
And now we finish with the good news because there's rewards for obeying the Lord. There's, there's rewards for obeying God's word. Look what he says. But now, that should all give us encouragement because that was pretty heavy. And he says, but now I will not treat the remnant of this people as in former days, declares the Lord of hosts. Great contrastive words that show the good news. But now. Things are different, right? There's this before picture of this disobedient, no fruit, no peace. And he says, but let me show you the after for motivation, for encouragement. God says, I will not treat this remnant like I did in the past. And that's because this remnant, this one in Zechariah's day, this group of God's followers were obeying what God had commanded them to do. They were building the temple. So what happens when a believer lives in obedience to God's word? In contrast to before, now there is peace. There is peace in verse 12. For there will be peace for the seed. It's a little strange kind of phrasing. It's, it's probably in reference, the idea of seed there is probably in reference to, to the vineyard. And if you've had vineyards on your land, you know it takes time for a vineyard to produce. And if they have this external strife of enemies coming in, an external strife where people inside the city were fighting them, they didn't have time to go prune a grapevine, or to tie it up, or to wait for years for it to actually produce, because it takes a long time for a grapevine to produce. And he says, but I'm going to give you peace for the seed. And, and most scholars believe he's saying, I'm going to give you peace long enough that the grapes will start producing. They will have that peace. The enemies will be put aside the strife, external and internal, will stop. God says there'll be peace. Where there was no peace, now there will be peace. We talked last week about the presence of God in our life. If we're a believer in the Lord, God's presence is always with us, and that should, that, that should give us a sense of peace that just washes over us. But there was no peace, now, there's, now there is peace. Before there was no fruitfulness, now there is fruitfulness. Look in the last part of verse 12. The vine will yield its fruit, the land will yield its produce, and the heavens will give their due. We read Haggai 1.10 earlier. Listen to the contrast. This was in the past. Before, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew and the earth has withheld its produce. Now there's going to be a complete reversal. God's going to let the earth produce and the sky would produce the moisture. And remember, the land is always an object lesson for their relationship with God. God's saying, our relationship is now restored because you repented, you turned, and you came back and started following after me. The, and, and like the land in Zechariah's day, the fruitfulness in our life is an indicator that we're living in obedience to God. When Paul prayed for the Christians in the Colossians church, he said in Colossians 1.9, 
For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, we could call that obedience, to please him in all respects, and look what it says, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Paul says, walking in a manner worthy of the Lord will please him and it will bear fruit in our lives. In fact, Jesus, it, Paul says in another place, that's why Jesus came. Look what it says. Not only to save us, not only to bring us salvation from sin and death by dying on the cross, but he came so that we would bear fruit. Romans 7, 4 says, Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may be joined to one another, to him who was raised from the dead, look, in order that we might bear fruit for God. See, when we live a life in obedience, our fruit is a testimony that we are saved. It is, it is an outward manifestation of what has happened inside. Before there was no peace, now there's peace. Before there was no fruitfulness, now there is fruitfulness. And now God tells us there is salvation. Look in 12, last part of verse 12. It says, I will cause the remnant of this people to inherit all these things. It will come about that just as you were a curse among the nations, O house of Judah, and house of Israel, so I will save you, that you may become a blessing. Do not fear, and look what he encouches this whole passage in, let your hands be strong. That let your hands be strong is this, is this book ends to all that he is saying. Continue to do what I've commanded you to do. Be courageous and follow after me. And he says, I will cause the people of God to inherit this. They're not earning this. Their obedience isn't earning their inheritance. God gives them the inheritance. You don't earn an inheritance from your parents if you happen to get one because you're good. You have it because you're their child. And just like that, when we are a child of God, there is an inheritance that is given to us through Jesus Christ and it's salvation. And what is he saving them? He says, your life was a curse before you were a curse among the nations. If the nations wanted to see what it would look like when someone disobeyed God, all they had to do was point to Israel and they would say, that's what it looks like to be cursed of God. There was no, there was no fruit from the ground. There was no rain. There was, they couldn't do anything. And, and it was just, there was enemies at them all the time. And God says, I'm going to save you from that. And I'm going to bring and make you a blessing. So when the people, of, when the people who are not God's people, they look and they say, what does it look like when God's in someone's life they pointed, now they point to Israel and say, look at the blessings that they are receiving. 
God saved them and made them a blessing. Their salvation was a gift. They didn't become a blessing because they worked hard to be obedient and that earned them salvation. We don't earn salvation. It is by grace through faith. Not of yourselves, so no one can boast, is what the Scripture tells us. But once they were saved, so to speak, they followed after the Lord, and God made them a blessing. Our obedience is the mark of our salvation. Look what it says in 1 John 2, 3 and 4. By this we know that we have come to know him. People come to me sometimes and say, I don't know if I'm saved or not. And John says, I can tell you how you know. Look what it says. By this we know we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. That's not saying we keep our salvation by keeping the commandments. It's simply saying if Christ has transformed us from the inside out and the Holy Spirit resides in us, the fruit in our lives will be obedience. The one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commands is a liar and the truth is not in him. 1 John 3, 9 says, No one who is born of God practices sin. That word practices doesn't mean we slip up and sin. It's the idea of a habitual life that we have engrossed ourselves and it is just part of who we are. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed, the Father's seed, abides in him. That is, Jesus Christ resides in us. We abide in him and he in us. He cannot sin because he is born of God. See, our salvation is seen when we obey. When we follow after what God has called us to do, it's evidence that we are saved. We don't gain our salvation through obedience. I want you to get that by the end of the sermon. I'm going to say it again and again. We do not earn our salvation, but our salvation is on full display when we are walking in accordance to the word of God. This passage is a contrast of a life in rebellion to God or a life in line with God, the before and after. And the turning point here that we should see in their life is that they turned, that they were able to turn. They were living for themselves, and it shows how basic repentance is in the Christian's life, a turning and following after the Lord. Repentance is key. We can confess, but if we never turn, then are we sorry? Repentance is turning and leaving it behind. The tallest building in the world is, is called the Burj Khalifa in Dubai. It is 2,717 feet tall. That's over a half a mile tall. No thank you. I'm just saying. You know, I'm not a real fan of uh, heights. So it has 160 floors. It's got the highest observation deck in the world at 100, uh, you know, 124th floor. You can go out and look. 
It's got the highest swimming pool in the world at 76 floors. The elevator is the fastest elevator in the world. It goes 40 miles an hour. I guess it'd have to to go, to go half a mile, right? But the secret to the stability, I mean, this thing has been up and it's stable, and the reason why is found underground. Before they did any work to start going up, they spent a year digging and pouring the foundation to this building. They put in 59,900 cubic yards of concrete, and and that concrete is said to weigh something like 110,000 tons, okay? It is a massive foundation. And if you're going to build a half a mile high, that's what you need. Our foundation in our spiritual life is Jesus Christ. Scripture says there is no other foundation on which a life is built. There is no foundation that is stronger more stable, more strong, deeper, wider, whatever you want to say. There is not a foundation that is more stable. Jesus Christ is the rock on which we build our spiritual life. When we live in obedience to him, we are not laying the foundation. The foundation comes by grace through faith. That is Jesus Christ dying on the cross for us and us surrendering our life to him to say what you say goes, to save me from sin, to save me from death, to give me hope in this life and the next. That's the foundation. But when we live in obedience to him, that's when we begin to start building that building. So the invitation today is simple. Are you living in obedience to Christ or are you living for self? Are we worshiping God with a self-centered life? I am at the center. What I want is the most and best and important thing in my life. Or are we worshiping with God at the center of our life? And what he says goes. What he wants goes. I'm going to have you bow your heads and think through this. Maybe today you've never trusted in Christ. And so you don't understand this talk about obedience. And I'd submit to you today that the greatest need that anyone has, and if you've never trusted in Christ, this is your desperate and most important need. You need Christ in your life. We are all sinners. We live in a world that is tainted with sin. And we all were going to spend eternity somewhere when we pass from this world. And the only way to spend eternity with Christ, or spend eternity in heaven, is through Christ. So maybe today you just need to acknowledge that and say, Christ, Jesus, I need you. I'm a sinner. I know I'm not perfect. And your standard is perfect. And so I want to give my life to you so that I can gain eternal life. Because after that, now you can start living in obedience. Beforehand, there's just no way. But maybe you're a believer and you have trusted in Christ. And you know there's a spot of disobedience 
that's keeping you from the fruitfulness and the peace that God can give. Maybe today you just turn it over. Maybe today you just give it to him and let him work in you the way he wants to. God, I come to you and ask that you would work in our lives. I thank you, God, that you don't leave us in the condition that we have no peace and no hope. But if we repent and seek after you, we will find you. When we, when we have Christ in us and we turn from our sin, we will find you with open arms waiting for us to return so that we will have peace and we will have forgiveness and we would fully understand what salvation is about, the freedom that you provide. God, I ask right now that you would move in our hearts and minds in a way that would please you, that we would be courageous to follow whatever you call us to do. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Staying Connected podcast, the preaching ministry of Pastor Roland Kennison from Rosemont Baptist Church in Montrose, Colorado. We pray the Lord will use this sermon to help you in your life and ministry. If you found this podcast helpful, would you consider contributing to our ministry? You can give online at www.rosemontbaptist.org forward slash give. If you live in Western Colorado or you're visiting the area, we would love to have you visit us on Sunday morning. Our services start at 1045 a.m. You can also watch our worship service live through our website at rosemontbaptist.org. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.